0: Chapter 11, The Afterlife We've covered God's relentless pursuit of us and how he offered Jesus as the way for us to restore our relationship with God. You may be thinking, alright, our relationship is restored. I'm going to love who Jesus loves and live for the same things he lives for. Then what? It's only natural for us to wonder what happens when we die, and Jesus talked about this during the Last Supper. When you think about it, Jesus knew he was going to be arrested and crucified, so this meal was the last opportunity he would have to talk with his friends. It stands to reason that the topics of discussion were probably near and dear to his heart. One of these conversations was about the afterlife. Let's read about it in John chapter 13. He said, "'My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going you cannot come.' A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, verses 33-35. through Naturally, Simon and Peter asked Jesus where he would be going, and Jesus assured them they would follow later, and not to let their hearts be troubled. "'You believe in God, believe also in me.' My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am John 14:1 through3. When Jesus spoke of his Father's house, where his father is, where he was going, and where the disciples would one day join him, that place is what Christians consider heaven. Spiritual destiny. Jesus went to heaven. God is in heaven, and followers of Christ go to heaven. Christians believe these things to be true because they're taught in the Bible. Remember from chapter 2 of this book that Christians believe human beings were created in the image of God, and if God is eternal, then so are we. Therefore, Christians believe they live eternally. We believe our bodies die, of course, and those are put into the ground or cremated, but the essence of who we are, our souls, do not die. We believe everyone has a spiritual destiny. That's what the Bible tells us. Our spiritual destiny is whether our soul will go to heaven or hell. According to the Bible, these are our only two options. There's no purgatory or reincarnation in the Bible, and we don't believe in ghosts or multiple dimensions. We believe what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.8. When we are absent from our bodies, that is, when our souls leave our bodies, those of us who are Christians become present with the Lord in heaven. Those of us who die and are not Christians are removed from God forever in hell. From a Christian's perspective, our time here on earth 80, 90, maybe 100 years if you eat your vegetables is incredibly brief. And even though it may be brief, it's an important period of time because it determines the trajectory of your eternity. I love Timothy Keller's books and recommend you read anything and everything he ever wrote. In one of his books, he alluded to the idea that eternity is simply the trajectory of our life played out eternally. So if I give my life to Christ on this earth, and if I love him and follow him and make him known, heaven is my eternal destiny. If I pursue Christ, then I get to be with him for eternity. If I were to reject Christ, his love, his invitation, and his authority, then God would remove himself from my life when I die, and my eternity from that point on would be spent in hell. Our trajectory is the most important determination we make in this time of our lives on earth. We either return to Christ, or we are forever caught in our sin. This is the essence of the gospel and the essence of the Bible. Heaven. By now, hopefully you understand the notion that human beings are sinful by nature, and it is God who imparts truth into our lives. We are sinful, but God wants us to know truth. That is why we have the Bible, the Church, and the Holy Spirit, so that truth can enter our lives and we can join Christ. We are imperfect. God is perfect. Perfection and imperfection cannot coexist, so Jesus stepped in and paid the price for our sin. When we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we are saved, Romans 10.9. We accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and because he paid the price, we get to interact with him eternally in heaven when our physical bodies perish. That's what the Bible teaches us. Heaven is a literal place. We don't believe it is an abstract or theoretical concept. Heaven is real. We believe what the Bible says about this. The Father God is there right now. He is in his throne room, and his Son, Jesus Christ, is seated at his right hand right now, Revelation 4. All the souls of the saints and people who put their faith in God are in heaven with him right now. They are truly, they're not as floating, nebulous blobs, but as real people. They look just like we look, and they're interacting with God and each other. My mom and dad are in heaven. God defined and directed their lives, and their sins were forgiven. Because they were followers of Christ, I believe their souls immediately went to be with God when they died. They're there, and they recognize each other. They recognize my brother who was in heaven before them, and they're safe and secure. They aren't my guardian angels, and they do not interact with me on earth. But they are in heaven, and they can see the work of the church. Hebrews 12, one says they are cheering for the church. You can do it. It's worth it. Do not give up. They're very much alive, and they're cheering us on as we do the work of the ministry. Beyond Comprehension. If you have ever attended a Christian funeral, you have probably heard someone say the deceased person isn't really dead. I myself have said this many times at funerals. In fact, I said it at my own parents' funerals. About my dad, I said, he is not in this box. His body is in this box, but he is not in this box. My dad is not dead. He is very much alive. He is with the Lord right now, and I will be reunited with him. I know my spirit will be with my father, my mother, my loved ones, and everyone else who has gone to heaven. The Bible says heaven is an incredible, wonderful place. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him, verse 9. Heaven is beyond human comprehension. Sometimes we get this idea we're going to do all our favorite things from our time on earth for eternity in heaven. If that were true, then I would watch Ohio State play football, work in my yard, and eat Twinkies. That's what I would do in heaven for eternity but that is not what heaven is like. It's not some version of your favorite earthly things. Heaven is beyond that. It's beyond anything you have seen, heard, or could possibly imagine. It's a place of wonder, perfection, and what the Bible calls glory. The Bible says the good things on earth are just dim, blurry reflections of what heaven is really like. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, Jesus said that in heaven God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, verse 4. Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, and before the curse, there was no death, no sin, and no stress. They were living in a perfect relationship with God and with each other until sin entered the world in Genesis, chapter 3. With sin came death, sickness, crying, and pain. But once we are in heaven with the Lord, all of that imperfection is erased from our lives again. It's wiped away, and we will have everything we ever wanted or needed because our perfect interaction with God will be restored. From a Christian perspective, heaven is our future, and what we believe about Jesus in this life sets our trajectory toward it. Lay up treasures. Jesus said we can do things now on earth that will affect us for eternity. In one instance, he spoke about money. He said we ought to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven where vermin and moths cannot destroy them and thieves cannot steal them, Matthew 6:19. Instead of simply doing whatever you want with your money here on earth, make bank in heaven because that's where the eternal reward is. In heaven, Jesus said, we're rewarded for our good deeds and selfless acts from our time on earth. These things don't get us into heaven, only the grace of God does that, but we're rewarded for leading righteous lives. For those who follow Him, God pays an eternal dividend in heaven. I think there are a few reasons why the Bible mentions heaven. For one thing, I think God wants us to begin life with the end in mind. He is really clear about not wanting us to get caught up in this little part of our lives on earth. Instead, we are to use our time here as the foundation that determines our trajectory. Another reason God tells us about heaven is to give us tremendous hope. It gives us the idea that we can break through the tape at the finish line and there's something to look forward to. I know when I die, I don't just cease to exist and turn into dust. I don't enter some atmosphere and float around or the worst of all things return to earth as a cat. Heaven gives us hope. God also tells us about heaven to offer us comfort. It's incredibly comforting to me to know that when my mom, dad, brother, and so many friends died, I wasn't saying goodbye forever because I know we will be reunited again. The Bible promises that to us. We grieve the temporary loss of our loved ones, but the Bible says we do not grieve like those without hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. When we say goodbye, we grieve like parents do when they send their kids to college or summer camp. I am thoroughly confident I will see my loved ones again. I just have to wait a little while. Lastly, God tells us about heaven because it gives us courage. As a Christ follower, I know I am not going to die, so I don't fear whatever someone may say or do to me. Emboldened by truth. Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10.28 Death happens to everyone on earth, but no one has to lose their soul. I think of the horrific reports from the United Nations of the Christian genocide taking place in ISIS-controlled areas in the Middle East. Just Google it. There are plenty of reports. The Christian martyrs of old and the martyrs of today, like those in the Middle East, find courage in knowing heaven is their destiny. Despite persecution and death, Christians are emboldened by the truth of their eternal souls. They think, go ahead and take my body. I don't care. I was created to live eternally. From their perspective, their sacrifice is simply speeding up the inevitable. They have courage to live for God, stand for the Lord, and pass from this life into the next. My family knew my dad's health was failing, so we had time to talk through all kinds of things. I specifically remember us talking a lot about heaven. He had no fear of death at all. In fact, a part of him was looking forward to it because he missed his son and my brother Doug, who he had not seen in 50 years. My dad didn't fight to take every breath of life he could because he had a confidence, a courage, a comfort, and a hope only heaven could offer. The Bible says heaven is God's promise and commitment to those of us who know Christ as our Savior, hell. Christians also believe in a place called hell. We touched on this briefly back in chapter 2, but it's important to have a clear understanding of it. Every human being is eternal, so those who reject Christ, his love, his authority, and his teaching also have an eternal destiny. We believe hell is a literal place too. We do not believe we are experiencing hell right now in the present day, nor do we believe hell is merely whatever dark circumstances may surround our lives. It is an eternal place with no escape and no second chances. In Revelation chapter 21, Jesus said, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, verse 8. In other words, if I do not believe Christ is the Savior when my body dies, my eternal soul will be condemned and damned to hell, and according to Matthew chapter 25, my soul would be there forever. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life, verse 46. The Apostle Paul wrote in Second Thessalonians that Jesus will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, 1, 8, and 9. Then again in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said of those who do evil, his angels will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 42. When you consider these scriptures about hell, you can see why we Christians take this matter as seriously as we do. The Bible doesn't tell us about hell so that Christians can gloat, ha, ha, ha. We're going to heaven, and everyone else is going to hell. That kind of attitude is self-righteous and arrogant. If you identify as a Christian, and that thought has ever crossed your mind, you better check your heart. Or if you've thought, one day, all the people I've disagreed with will fry in hell, you are missing the point, my friend. The Bible doesn't teach us about hell, so we can look forward to the suffering of our enemies. That's a big fat nope, an avoidable tragedy. The reason God tells us about hell is because hell is a completely avoidable tragedy. No one has to go to hell. Hell is simply the final destination of the natural trajectory of our lives should we choose to deny Christ. We are, by nature, sinners, so if we do not interrupt that sinful trajectory, we'll wind up in hell. And that kind of fate breaks the heart of God. It breaks his heart so much he sent the prophets to us, he gave us the Bible, he created the church, He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Remember, as we discussed in chapter 2, God created us with free will, so the belief referenced in John 3.16 points to the choice we have to accept or deny him. Love necessitates that option. The extent to which God goes to help us escape hell is extraordinary. God's wish is for everyone to have everlasting life because at the end of the day, hell is a place of eternal suffering and punishment and there is absolutely no reason for anyone to end up there. God tells us about hell to warn us, it's a passionate plea. Hell is not something we should turn into a mythical idea and we shouldn't minimize the severity of it with humor. We shouldn't conceptualize it in such a way that allows us to think of it like, when I die, all my friends will be in hell too, and we'll party forever. It doesn't work out like that. And even though jokes about hell are admittedly kind of funny, they're also really, really tragic at the same time. We're talking about the eternal loss of someone's soul and eternal damnation. Here, the Bible teaches us the only way to get into heaven is through Jesus Christ, and those are Jesus' words, not mine. He said in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All roads don't lead to heaven. We don't believe every faith is basically the same thing or that we all serve one big God or everything works out in the end. We don't believe any of that because it's not what Jesus taught. He taught the exact opposite from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. He taught monotheism that there is one God and you must respond to that God on that God's terms. And from the Christian perspective, God's term is the forgiveness of sin. If you do not accept the forgiveness of sin, your soul is lost. It's life or death. Christians do not believe we can simply coexist with other faiths by viewing them as equal to one another. That doesn't mean we have license to be jerks to other people or look down on other religions, but our faith goes deep and it's passionate. We have discovered a truth and we have to proclaim this truth because it's the only way to salvation. Eternal destiny is at stake. Our very souls are at stake. And as Christians, we want to share the gospel with everyone we can so they too know the love and hope and truth of Jesus and avoid this unnecessary tragedy. For us, it's a life or death situation. Maybe you have a friend who's always telling you about Jesus or he or she is always hyped up on the Lord. They're like that because they love you. They aren't trying to be pushy or obnoxious. It's their way of saying, I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to go to heaven and only Christ can take you there. We believe this is the very purpose of the church and its driving force to help people know the gospel of the truth of Jesus Christ. We send missionaries all over the world to share this truth. It's also why we start other campuses and other churches. It's why we put all kinds of effort into loving and serving other people. We do all of those things to foster relationships, so we can also share the gospel. We want to feed hungry kids, and we also want them to know the truth of Jesus Christ. We want to help people with medical needs feel better physically, but we also want them to know God. It's this truth that motivates everything we do. Our earthly tents. We believe this life is wonderful and given to us by God. It can be full of joy, purpose, meaning, and all the things we want and long for, but this life is also just a temporary phase. I love the way the Apostle Paul wrote about this very idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he refers to our bodies as tents. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, verse 1. I think it's safe to say we all recognize our bodies are temporary. They're just the vehicles our souls travel around in, and I can't help that mine happens to be this good-looking. That was God's will. My point is that we all know our bodies aren't going to last forever, and we all know our bodies are separate from our souls. If my hot bod falls ill, or if I lose physical mobility, I do not die. My tent just changed. A few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote, For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, verse 4. We groan because of these tents and were burdened by them. I don't know about you, but my tent certainly aches. I'm getting old. My tent moans and experiences sickness. I am burdened in my tent because I have friends who I wish were making different decisions, children who I worry about, a church that concerns me, pressure at work, and all kinds of things. I have burdens in my life, and they all affect this handsome tent of mine. According to Paul, our tents ache and our burden because we long for our heavenly dwelling. When I think of heavenly dwelling, I think of peace. I think of everything going smoothly and perfectly. I think of everyone having a real and true love for one another. I think of everyone locking on to God for who he is and what he says. I think of things beyond whatever this temporary dwelling of mine can produce. Paul continued, So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, 2 Corinthians 5.4. This tent is mortal. You and I have a mortality. This body is alive, but it's not permanent. It is mortal and it's going to be swallowed up by life. What is temporary will eventually be taken over by what is eternal. Then Paul wrote, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. God created us this way. We were made in his image to be eternal. God did not create me to live to 60, 70, 80, or 100 years old because I'm not going to make it on earth forever. Maybe scientists will figure out how to prolong life, and they'll defrost Walt Disney, but we are not going to make it forever in these bodies, no way, no how. God created us to be on earth, to accept the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, and to live in the authority of God. And in return, God has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. When I accept Christ, several things happen. First, my sins are forgiven because I take on Jesus' righteousness, holiness, and forgiveness. I become a part of the church, the spiritual entity, or ecclesia, which is the Latin word for church, if you want to impress somebody. The Holy Spirit of God lives in me once I open my heart to Jesus. My name gets written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Remember, the Lamb is in reference to Jesus, and the Spirit gives me a deposit guaranteeing what is to come heaven. God makes a reservation for my room in the Father's house, and the Holy Spirit is my down payment. I don't have to freak out over whether or not I'm going to make it to heaven or hope I did enough good deeds." Your room is being built right now in the Father's house because of who Christ is, what he did, how he died, and how he was resurrected. All this information about the afterlife heaven and hell is meant, at least in part, to give us perspective, because as humans we struggle with the idea of our mortality, and I'm no different. I struggle with thinking beyond my life on earth. I have this tiny sliver of time to get everything I possibly can out of this life of mine. And because of its brevity, it's easy for many people to think things like, I have to sleep with as many people as I can. I have to make as much money as I can. I have to do it all. Let's pretend that's how you feel. And let's pretend you win this game of life. You get to lead the most legendary life ever lived on planet Earth. You have the most money, fame, sex, and you eat Twinkies without gaining weight. Sure, you may feel you've won in this life, but this life ends and you can't take any of that with you to your eternal destiny. You were created to be with God and in your Father's house. Nothing else matters ultimately. Remember what Paul said, what is mortal is swallowed up by life 2 Corinthians 5.4. We sometimes lose perspective of this. Are mortal things important? Absolutely. The mortal things determine the trajectory of my life. I have the choice to decide whether I will pursue Christ or reject Him. It's up to me. This sliver of time on earth does not define my life. It directs my life. But if I reject Christ and choose to live for the moment, and if my mortality is all I ever engage, I am choosing to lose my soul. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus asked, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? I could go ahead and win the whole world, but I would be sacrificing what I was actually created for in the process. Everyone has a soul and everyone has an eternal destiny, and that destiny only comes with two options, heaven or hell. Who will remember you? I don't know your perspective on how the world came to be. If you are a creationist like I am, you believe that the planet is about 10,000 years old. God created it with oil, diamonds, and carbon already in it. Maybe you're an evolutionist who believes the world is millions and millions and millions of years old. For the sake of discussion, let's say the world really is 10,000 years old, and let's go back 8,000 years. That allows at least some time to have passed since Adam's and Eve's existence. Who do you think was the richest, most athletic guy back then? Let's make it easier and go back just 1,000 years ago. Who was the biggest deal then? Do you know his or her name? You're one of 8 billion people. Do you think anyone is going to remember you 1,000 years from now? Of the billions and billions and billions of people who have walked on this planet, whether that's millions or thousands of years ago, how many of those people's names do we actually remember? 50? Do you think anyone is going to remember how high you climbed the corporate ladder 1,000 years from now? Do you think anyone is going to remember you played on the varsity team? We look back and laugh at the cutting edge technology from 500 years ago. Have you seen my new butter churn? I see yours is last year's model. We may mock it, but in their little slice of time, they thought they'd discovered everything. The academic elite from 500 years ago were saying, oh yes, the sun revolves around the earth. We've discovered it. Their technology and discoveries were big deals in their time, but most all of it has either evolved into something more efficient or it's become entirely obsolete. It's possible that nobody will remember who you are or that you even existed. If history indeed repeats itself, and if we play the odds, chances are that our country won't even be on Earth's map in a thousand years. And that is unbelievably disillusioning in some ways. We get a limited number of years, and in those years, even if we get straight A's, set the high school record, live within the nice zip code, and buy the hood ornament, we still will die and pretty much cease to exist in the eyes of the living. After just two generations, hardly anyone will remember our names, let alone our accomplishments. Life has vapor. We were created for something else. Who was the person who lived a thousand years ago who decided to lose their life to find it? Instead of buying the new butter churn, who gave their money to the church to send missionaries to Germany, who boarded a boat that floated over the Atlantic Ocean to the United States, who pushed their way inward after that boat landed on the East Coast so that you and I could come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Somebody did that. Do you know who? I don't, and I'm not sure anyone today does. But God knows because the person who did all those things was fulfilling their purpose. They were doing what they were created to do. Do you know how God views our life? He says our life is a vapor, James 4.14. It's here, and then poof, it's gone. That's life. That's it. If we accept the premise and teachings of the Bible, how should it change the way we live? I don't know about you, but it hugely affected and continues to affect all my decisions. With heaven and hell as our only options for eternity, I choose to accept the Bible as truth by faith. I choose to make a move after I study God's word to determine it's what God wants. I confess my sins and ask for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and I place my life under His authority and direction to become a fully devoted follower. Double Down on Eternal Things As a follower of Jesus Christ, I am not obsessed with the mortal life. I appreciate my house and I drive my car around and I take fun vacations with my family from time to time, but my eyes are fixed on things above. We don't have to join a monastery to be Christ's followers, but do you really need to prioritize the kind of purse you carry? Are you really going to dedicate your life to that soccer team's success? In choosing to follow Christ, the logical conclusion for the way I live my life is to double down on eternal things. This life is going to be gone in the blink of an eye, so I need to set my attention on heaven. The Bible says that the rewards I have there will not rust, be eaten by moths, or be destroyed. So it is an investment I can make that is safe and incorruptible. The Bible says the discomforts of this life are light and momentary 2 Corinthians 4.17 in comparison to the eternal glory. I encourage you to take a few minutes and talk to God about all of this. Give Him some freedom in your life. If you have never asked for the forgiveness of sin, I encourage you to ask for that. If you feel distracted and sucked up in the temporal things of life, ask for clarity. Double down on eternal investments. See how God leads you and the conclusions He brings you to. Headspace. Connect with God. The wonderful opportunity to be in heaven with God and the incredible opportunity to escape the ravages of hell has often been the populist message of Christianity. Do what God says and go to heaven. Don't do what God says and go to hell. But the message of Jesus is much more complex than that. Jesus, in essence, is saying, if you love me and reach for me, I will reach back to you and help you follow me. And when you get to heaven, that relationship will keep working that way. The other side of the coin is also true. If you reject me and my offer of love and forgiveness when you cross over from this part of your life to the next, that same relationship will hold true. We will be forever distant from each other. So the core question has to be, will you accept the love and forgiveness of Jesus, or will you reject the love and forgiveness of Jesus? To reject the love and forgiveness of Jesus, really, all we have to do is become indifferent. We can rebel and sin as much as we want to, but simply our indifference will accomplish the goal of rejection. To accept the love and forgiveness of Jesus, all we have to do is receive it, allow God's love to transform us, allow His truth to define and direct us, and embrace the opportunity that God has given to know Him and experience His love. I encourage you take a few minutes and think through your choice because the Bible would say it's a deliberate decision. So maybe in these moments make a conscious decision to accept the hope, love, and forgiveness of Christ. Connect with others. This great message of accepting the hope and love of Jesus Christ then drives the Church of Jesus. We often call it the Great Commission. Jesus gave it to the Church in Matthew 28, 16-20. In this passage, he tells his followers to go to all nations to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything he has commanded. That is why we tell the story of Jesus to other people. Ultimately, that's why I wrote this book. The good news is not something that I just keep for myself, but I share it with all around me. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for you? Well, I guess it depends on what your decision was with the first part of this headspace. If you reject Jesus as your savior, then I guess this is very bad news for you. To reject the hope and grace that God offers us is something that hurts go and will ultimately hurt you. It makes God sad that he would have gone to such lengths to try to rescue us, but we would not want to be rescued by him. If you decided to receive the hope and love of Jesus, then the Bible tells us that all of heaven rejoices at that Luke 15, seven and 10. God is thrilled that you took him up on his offer to know him, walk with him, and ultimately to be with him forever.